Welcome to the Kol Hadash Podcast. This is episode 50 of the Humanistic Jewish Audio Series. Traditionally, Judaism has been in control by a select few. Rules of what is and isn't Jewish are both figuratively and literally set in stone. As humanistic Jews, we can break the tablets and explore what a free and open Judaism can be. Saying that's weird. 
Why isn't it available for free for everyone to see anywhere? Why do I have to buy a paper to get it? Well, that's how it used to work, but that's not how things work today. So it's very appropriate for us to ask the question, should we be looking to a free Judaism for the 21st century? But of course, the title free Judaism on the page can be read different ways. It could be free Judaism, but it could also be free Judaism. <laughs> and maybe living a free and open Judaism. Never read emotional content into email messages, because you never know how they're being said. So let me give you three possible inflections of what free Judaism means. The first one is no charge Judaism. Literally, low price, free, easy access. But I want to ask you a question. I'm interested in your responses. How much does it cost to be Jewish? What are the kind of things that you have to pay for? Congregational dues? Okay. Menorah. Buying a menorah, making donations, either for community consumption or for your own well-being. Bar mitzvahs. Bar mitzvahs, right. Tribute donations for happy events or in memory of people. Religious school education. The building fund. <laughs> what building? What building fund? There is no building fund. Planting trees in Israel. Getting your names on a building or in a publication. Subscribing to magazines, purchasing books, all those things. Well, it's sort of a trick question. The real answer of how much does it cost to be Jewish is zero. It costs nothing to be Jewish. And to do many Jewish things can also be relatively inexpensive. You can celebrate Passover and Hanukkah at home. You can read history and literature on your own. On Kindle, it's pretty cheap. You can cook food, you can tell jokes, you can collect family history and do your genealogy. There are lots of things you can do that are Jewish that aren't that expensive, and to be Jewish costs you nothing. Now it sounds like I'm arguing myself out of a job. Who needs a rabbi or a congregation if all these things are available? Do it yourself. Well, there's a joke that has a resonant element of truth to it. Why is a Jewish divorce so expensive? The answer is, it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs a rabbi or a congregation? Well, to have a Jewish community isn't free Judaism, but it's worth it if it's the right community. What do we get out of a community? We get an opportunity for learning, both for children and also for adults. You have a chance for mutual support, sharing joys like this, or facing concerns together, challenges and difficulties and loss. We have a sense of a personal transcendence, being part of a community of like-minded people who don't think alike, who feel that they share values, feel connected to each other because of their Jewish heritage and connection to the Jewish family, but also because they look at life the same way. We find that the community provides a deep emotional satisfaction, a sense of belonging, a sense of roots, we find that being in a community helps us through those life transitions, but also helps us celebrate the important moments of life. Shabbat together is better than Shabbat alone. Rosh Hashanah as a community is better than Rosh Hashanah by yourself. Now you notice I didn't mention guilt. You know, the model of Jewish community that used to obtain was you should belong because you should. It's good for you. Like broccoli. <laughs> now, now, my son happens to like broccoli. It's not a hard sell. But you can't sell things by saying, you should do this. 
You should feel bad if you don't do this. Now, people have tried to sell cars that way. They've tried to sell items that way, but it just doesn't work. You have to sell it on the merits. How is it good for you? Why is it good for you? What can you get out of it? There are a lot of things we get out of community. In a free society, people are choosing to act on being Jewish, and we need to attract them and make it worthwhile. People pay for the opera. They pay for sporting events. They are generous to charitable causes whose work that they value. And so maybe we need to explore new ways to get support. More emphasis on voluntary donations and less on dues, maybe, or a fee-for-service model, or a subscription to a series model, or something. But the country club dues model, let's pay a lot whether you use it or not, maybe isn't hitting as many as it could. You see, we have to find the right challenge, or the balance, you see. The right balance is between free samples, come as you want, and staying in business. Because if all you do is give away free samples, then you can't make it up in volume. <laughs> On the other hand, we also want to find the right balance of empowering individuals to do it themselves, but also have a level of professionalism, of education, of quality leadership. You know, having a community co-op is great, but I don't know if you wanted to perform surgery on you. There's a level where professionalism, expertise, knowledge, experience is useful and valuable and worth something. Now, a second model of free Judaism is this new mitzvah, this new commandment. Free Judaism, like free Huey. Or I mean, free Willie. <laughs> now, in philosophy, there are two concepts of freedom. There's freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from are examples of freedom from hunger, freedom from want, so you don't have to worry about these negative things. Whereas freedom to are positive freedoms, freedoms to be able to do something. Freedom, sometimes freedom to be hungry, but also freedom to be successful, freedom to start a business, freedom to do what you choose to do with your life. And so in many ways, this new call of free Judaism, this mitzvah, is a call to freedom from problematic aspects of our identity. Here are some examples of freedom from from a Jewish perspective. One is freedom from mythology. Look at our history. And look at our history as we would look at the history of any other people. And we find that the stories of our earliest origins, the Adam and Eve, the Noah and the Flood, the Tower of Babel, the Patriarchs, the Exodus, they just don't hold up to the light of day, to the light of science and archaeology, critical study, comparative study. It's no accident that there's a Babylonian flood story that the founding king of the Akkadian nation was supposedly exposed on a basket in the river and then found by a goddess to be raised. Does that story ring any bells? <laughs> you see, archaeology, evolution, geology, they disagree with the facts. And so we're not dependent on the mythology anymore. We can appreciate the stories, but we don't think that that is what happened or that that is where we truly came from. And even more important, we don't assume that where we started is the most important period of Jewish history. You see, if that were the case in evolution, then we would spend all our time focused on Australopithecus and Lucy, and that first uh, fossil we discovered in the Olduvai Gorge in these tar pits in South Africa, we would spend all our time on studying that to understand humanity. But that's not how we celebrate the evolution of humanity. We learn from all phases of the why this change happened, why that change was an advantage. Well, the same is true for Jewish life. Passover began 
as a harvest festival for shepherds and for farmers. But it became a communal celebration that urban Jews could celebrate over 2,000 years ago when they began asking four questions. By the way, a different set of four questions than the four questions we use today. They used to ask, why do we eat a lamb roasted all the way through? Because that's what they did when the temple stood in Jerusalem. And now we ask instead, why do we recline? The holiday changed, it grew. The intervening thousands of years of Jewish history and experience count. They're important. They're equally important, sometimes even more important than where the story started. It may be the case that we are freed from mythology, but also free from the tyranny of the past. We're not defined by our earliest literature and ideas. They help to define us, but they do not limit who we are. You hear a lot of discussion about Torah values, the idea of mitzvah is a good deed. Now, when you actually read the text in the Torah, what you find is a mix. Some positive, some negative, some values that seem very foreign and ancient, some values that seem progressive even for our day, let alone for their own day. If you were a bar mitzvah student or a bat mitzvah student in a traditional community, you would be assigned a Torah portion based on the week of your event which is why when one of our members needed to change their date, there was a date in April that was wide open <laughs> because it was leprosy and <laughs> incest and all these terrible, nobody wanted their kid to have to do that. Well, the nice thing from our community is you get to choose your Torah reading or your subject for your bar about mitzvah, so that wasn't a limitation for us. But if you were in another congregation, April 19th that year would have been terrible <laughs> to have your 12-year-old girl talking about these texts. Okay. But you could get that, or you could get a wonderful passage in the Joseph story, where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and forgives them. Or the story of Abraham and his hospitality. Or the passages about loving your neighbor as yourself, or not oppressing the stranger because you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. There are marvelous passages, too. But we're not stuck in the old routine and ritual. And we're not bound by the end of those five books. There's plenty of other inspirational literature, material, in later generations, in later Jewish creativity. And even more important, we don't have to assume that we agree with our ancestors to honor our ancestors. Have you ever disagreed with your grandparents? <laughs> I hope so. Well, that's the case with our connection to the past. There are things we honor and love about our ancestors, and there are things with which we disagree. And that's good, and that's honest. There are values and information we have today that they had no idea of. Gender equality, evolution, science, foreign concepts to the writers of the Torah, crucial basic concepts for us. And after all, we learn our values not only from our ancestral past, from what our bubby told us, what our bubby's bubby's bubby told us, what our bubby's bubby's bubby Zadie wrote down in the Torah. We also learn from other people, from our own experience. And sometimes those values speak to us more than the values we find in the past. Sometimes the values of the past provide a resonance, a roots that we can't find anywhere else. Our free Judaism is free from isolation from the world. You see, all too often when you study Jewish history and Jewish culture, you imagine that it's a Judaism free from influence from anything else. It's traveling in a bubble. We never read any outside books. We never met any outside people. We never ate any outside food. We never experienced any outside cultures. Well, that's just not true. 
We know that the reason Jews look different from culture to culture and place to place geographically is because they mix with the native peoples. We know the reason they dress differently and eat differently is because of these connections with the people around them. And so what we can do is face the reality that we are not free from influence from the outside world. We celebrate influence from the outside world. We find inspiration. We find philosophical ideas and powerful messages, creative culture, even loving life partners, parents to our children and grandchildren. You see, many Jews live this way. They love their Chinese food. They love their chicken parmesan. They love their mashups of Korean food and Mexican food, or whatever else you can find out. That's part of experiencing life out there. And it's wonderful. But official Judaism tends to be a little bit behind what people are actually doing on the street. If what we speak and understand is English, we can use it for our celebrations. We use Hebrew provides us roots, but English can provide us wings and inspiration. And most importantly, we can free our Judaism from the tyranny of orthodoxy. You see, the stereotypical model is orthodox Jews do everything. And conservative Jews do less, and reformed Jews do even less. I mean, constructions are somewhere in between, but nobody really knows exactly what they're doing. <laughs> Humanistic Jews do practically nothing. Well, the truth is that everybody's choosing. Is sacrificing animals at an altar Jewish practice? Well, historically, sure. Is it something Jews choose to do today? No. Only the Samaritans who branched off of the Jewish tree 2,500 years ago. The Samaritans still sacrifice animals once a year. If you want to see the Passover sacrifice the way it used to be done, You've got to go there. Of course, getting a tourist visa to the West Bank in that particular region is not so easy. So watch a movie about it. But you can at least experience what that victory used to be. But that's not good practice people do today. You know, when you choose what you choose to read in a Shabbat service, as we do in our congregation, you've made a choice. We include poetry by Marge Piercy and Judy Chicago. In an Orthodox service, they wouldn't choose that material. But that's their choice from Jewish culture what they've chosen to, chosen to include and chosen not to. You see, Orthodox Jews are approximately 20% of the population globally, somewhat more in Israel, somewhat less here, maybe 12-15% here in North America. But the reason why they're only that much is they don't speak to the other 80-85% of the American Jewish community. Orthodoxy does not define correct Jewish practice or dominant Jewish practice unless we let them define dominant Jewish practice by saying, well, they're doing everything and we're doing less. Imagine if you reverse the survey yet. Normally the surveys ask, how many people light Shabbat candles? How many people keep kosher at home? Let's ask those questions differently. How many people don't keep kosher at home? 80%. How many people don't light Shabbat candles at home? 85%. How many people don't do a Passover Seder? 15%, 20%. How many people don't light on candles? 10%, 15%. You see, when you switch the numbers around, you realize that what people tend to value, what defines normative Jewish practice is what the Jews are doing, not what some people say they should be doing. In the end, we need to be descriptive and not just prescriptive. Not tell people what they should do, but find out what they're doing. You see, my job as a rabbi, our places of community, is a chance to explore possibilities to liberate yourself, to learn what the choices are. Yes, what the historic options were in all their varieties, but also what Jews can do today. 
in some ways, not just freedom from the tyranny of the past, but freedom to do what we choose to do, a free and open Judaism. How is our Judaism free? Well, it's free to be consistent with our personal convictions and our actual lived behavior. Our philosophy of life is, is exemplified by what we do. Words have meaning, even in Hebrew. So why not have the extra satisfaction of both the roots in melody and in lyrics, but also the conviction of saying what you believe and believing what you say? That's a free and open Judaism. Our Judaism is free and open to create new texts and new celebrations, drawing on the old and modifying it as appropriate. I often use the example of inheriting the attic. You inherit your great aunt's attic, it's all yours in some way. Some elements are useful for you in your home, you want to take them and display them right away. Other elements aren't really relevant to your lifestyle, so you maybe give them to some other branch of the family, or you put them off by the side of the road and someone else will take them and use them. Maybe some elements could work in your home, but they need a new frame or some other new settings to make it work better for you. It's all yours. You've inherited it all, but it's up to you to choose how it fits in your house. In some McDonald's restaurants in Israel, during Passover, you can get a cheeseburger on matzah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's relevant because it's Passover time, you want the matzah, but milk and meat, who really cares? <laughs> well, that's also... Jewish. To have matzah during Passover, even if it's with a cheeseburger, is also a Jewish choice. It could be the beginning of a new Jewish tradition. <laughs> Our Judaism is free to ask questions everywhere. You know, you get the reputation for Judaism of uh, a religion of questions, open to questions, 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 up to a point. In Mishnah Sanhedrin, one of the first collections of rabbinic sayings, it says, all of Israel has a share of the world to come. Oh, sounds good. The next verse. And these are they who have no share in the world to come. The one who says that there is no resurrection of the dead in the Torah. And if you read the Torah, there is no resurrection of the dead in the Torah. It's a rabbinic interpretation. The one who says that the Torah is not from heaven, was not given directly from Moses, uh, from God to Moses, in exactly the same way as we have to predict, well, it isn't. We know that. And finally, an apichorus, a heretic, the Epicurean who dares to challenge divine justice. Well, we're three for three so far. <laughs> and then it adds, Rebbe Kiva adds, also the person who reads the outside books, who goes off the reading list, who goes and reads what they have told you not to read. Well, there's no better way to get a book on the bestseller list than to tell someone not to read it. I mean, I would love it if one of our publications got a captive registry of the books you're not supposed to read. What a, what a selling book, right? Put it on the front cover. Hope the church doesn't want that. But you see, this model of don't ask questions beyond a certain point, well, that doesn't work for us. We have to be able to ask questions of each other, of our tradition, and even of ourselves. You see, our Judaism does not have to be what everyone thinks it is. Judaism does not have to be an expensive bar mitzvah bar, a lavish building with donor names all over the place. Judaism does not have to be the passing on of a fixed tradition that has nothing to do with who you are as a person, or what you want your children to be, a tradition you are not allowed to contribute to in your own way. You see, it's an inheritance. We are not custodians. We are not museum curators, preserving it exactly the way it is. We are owners. It's ours. Judaism is not a theology that was set forth in God's beliefs. 
It's an historical and cultural identity that comes from centuries of human experience, including our own. Your Judaism can be a pre-Judaism. I know mine is. And for many who find their way into humanistic Judaism, the sentiment is summed up in a line from Leviticus that is part of American history, too. At the end of the wandering in the desert, the Israelites stand on the edge of the Promised Land. They are told that on the 50th year, the Jubilee year, they should proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. That land, if that line sounds familiar, it's also the last verse Charlton Heston uses at the end of the Ten Commandments. Now, we read later that the Canaanites are to be destroyed. Their altars are to be wiped out. Their cities are to be burned. But proclaim liberty to all the inhabitants thereof. <laughs> well, the proclamation in Leviticus stays even if the condemnations in Deuteronomy are also there. Now, 2,000 years after those words were written, those same words were cast onto a bell in Pennsylvania that today we call the Liberty Bell. It became a symbol of the abolitionist movement against slavery. And we can draw our inspiration from both the American tradition of liberty and that old line in Leviticus, proclaim liberty to the inhabitants. Let us consider our Judaism and proclaim liberty throughout our people to all the inhabitants thereof. And let freedom reign. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.